Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'm so glad that you're here as we continue this wonderful journey through the book of Philippians. It's been a great stop on our five-year journey through the entire Word of God, hasn't it? Well, today our study with Dr. J. Vernon McGee begins in chapter 3, verse 7, where we examine the revolutionary letter given to the church at Philippi by Paul the Apostle. So grab your Bible and open to Philippians chapter 3 as we hear some introductory thoughts by Dr. McGee. For some time now, my attention has been called to something that is going on in prophetic circles that is certainly sensationalism and leads to many wild statements. And I thought that today, before we begin our study, that I probably ought to say just a word about it. I have before me now a piece of literature that's being circulated with the number 666, and it says 666 is here. Well, may I say to you that 666 has been here a long time because all you have to do is to just write six three times and that can be done. But notice what this statement is, and I'm just going to read one. It says, Now 666 appears on my own statements from Sears Roebuck, and I have letters concerning 666 on MasterCharge, Visa, Bank AmeriCard, J.C. Penney, and other credit systems, banks from Florida to Australia are using 666, some of them even on their bank logos. 666 reportedly is the most usable number for universal transfers between computers worldwide because it can be programmed in its normal position or inverted six or nine. Some bank AmeriCard forms use 699. Well, may I say to you, all of that may be true, and of course it is true. We live in a computer age where most of us have been given a number. In fact, the matter is, I'm a number everywhere I go. I'm a number when I go to the hospital. I'm just a number any place that you attempt to go today. And it certainly may be true that 666 is cropping up many places. But what does that prove? It does prove that 666 is certainly making the rounds today. But it's not a fulfillment of Bible prophecy at all. Actually, the only thing that could be said about it, it may be a forerunner of something that is yet to come. But you must remember that the 666 is a number that will appear at a particular time in God's prophetic program. And we definitely are not there yet. For instance, the rapture must take place first. That is, the Lord must take the church out of the world. That's the first thing that must take place. And then the great tribulation takes place. And during that period, Antichrist will use this number 666. And the meaning of it, we do not know now, and we need not know. I don't expect to be around when 666 is here. That is the one 
who is Antichrist, the last world dictator before Christ comes to the earth to set up his kingdom, so that because of that, the occurrence of 666 doesn't prove anything now other than it's a number that can be used when the time comes. I wish that we could get away from this sensationalism that's in prophecy today and stick to the Word of God and remember that the church is not looking for signs. We are listening for a voice. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. Now, that's what we are listening for. And we are not looking for signs. We are told, actually, to beware of them. And though this may be very interesting and very sensational, and it appeals to people with itching ears, may I say to you, let's beware of that and keep our minds and hearts centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not looking for a sign, but we're listening for a voice. That's great insight from Dr. McGee, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together in your word. Would you open our minds to understand and then our hearts to receive the message that you have for us today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's open to Philippians 3 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, friends, we come back to this very marvelous third chapter of the epistle to the Philippians. And today we put in it verse 7. Now, last time we saw that Paul gave to us the things that he could trust in and did trust in when he had confidence in the flesh. That is, he believed that his good works, his religion, his ritual, his sacrifices, everything that he did contributed to his salvation. And then he met the Lord Jesus, on the Damascus Road. And what happened? A revolution took place. Listen to him describe it here. Verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Now, that is what happened on the Damascus Road. What things were gained to me, I counted them loss for Christ. Now, on that credit side of the ledger where he had been making these additions of good works and his character, his background, his religion. My, all of that seemed to add up and amount to something. And it did on the human plane. But he says, when I met Christ, it got off of the credit side and actually became a debit. I no longer trusted that. And when I met Jesus Christ, I'd hated him before. I was on the way to Damascus to persecute his followers And now the one who was on the debit side becomes the credit side, and the only one I trust in is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, if the bookkeeping system of this country was transformed like that, it would upset the economy of the world, and it would be a revolution. A revolution took place. And actually, any conversion is a revolution, because what things are gained become a loss. What is a loss becomes a gain. It turns you upside down, right side up, and inside out. It gets you in an altogether different position. And friends, if this hasn't happened to you, well, all I can say is it just hasn't happened. That's all. And this is what conversion is. 
Now, between verses 7 and 8, there is a time lapse. How long? I'm not prepared to say. But later on, Paul could say this, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things, I do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now, that was not just an experience of a moment. Actually, this matter of conversion is not a balloon ascension. And a great many people think sanctification is that, that you can go down to some altar, you can have some experience and see a vision, and that you're carried to the heights, and that's it. Why, my friend, may I say to you, conversion is something that stays with you. It's not for the moment. It happens in a moment, but it continues on. And sanctification is a walk, and a walk is not something you do way up in the air in a balloon ascension. A walk is right down here day by day and moment by moment. Now he says, I have found out since I've come to Christ that the knowledge of Jesus Christ is uppermost in my thinking. And he said, I've suffered the loss of all things. All of these things I counted on why I no longer count on them. And Paul says, I count now what he counted before as being so wonderful, his prized possession. He says, it's now done. That's a strong statement. Paul says, I flush my religion down the drain. And that's what a great many folk need to do today. I remember hearing Dr. Carroll say years ago, he says, when I was converted, I lost my religion. And a great many people need to lose their religion and find Jesus Christ. As Paul did, he lost his religion. He not only lost it, why, it was for the garbage can. And he had had it on the table as being his most prized possession. This is a revolution that's taken place. Now he states this in theological terms in a most wonderful way here. And this is the theological explanation of what happened to him. Verse 9, "...and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith." Now, this is the verse that old Baptist John Bunyan, walking through the cornfields at night, wondering how he could stand before God, and he made this statement. He says, when I came to Christ, I didn't just see myself as a sinner. I saw myself as sin. From the crown of my head to the sole of my feet, I was sin. And when I came to him, I saw that I had nothing, and he had everything. And this is the verse that came to him. He said that night, walking through the cornfield, be found in him not having mine own righteousness. Now, his own righteousness, as he makes it clear, it's of the law. That is, law-keeping. He could boast of the fact he kept the Sabbath day. And Paul says, now let no man judge you about a Sabbath day. God's not going to judge me, and I'm not going to let you judge me. You can make your statement, but your statement won't stand because of the fact that mine own righteousness, I could boast of the fact that I preach so many times during the year that I have a daily radio program. But these things are nothing, friends. They count for nothing for salvation. 
mine own righteousness is a legal righteousness. And God has already said the righteousness of man's filthy rags in his sight. And God is just not taking in dirty laundry. He's taking in dirty sinners. And he's the one that'll clean them up. Now, he had therefore given up his claim to all of his own righteousness. Now, my friend, when you come to Christ, you come as a bankrupt. You have nothing to offer him. Let's look at that. Let's tell it like it is. What have you got that God can use? I remember speaking several years ago to the Hollywood Christian group, and there had been a young couple converted, and they were talented kids. They had been in nightclubs, and they were attractive kids. They were beautiful people. On the human side, they had everything. And they called on him for a testimony before I spoke. And he gave this kind of a testimony, that he'd been converted now, and he's going to take this wonderful talent that he had and use it for Jesus. And so after I had finished teaching that night, I got with them at a table where they had coffee and cookies. And I said to him, I have a question that I would like to ask you. It sort of bothers me. You made the statement that you have a wonderful talent to use for Jesus. I'd like to know what your wonderful talent is. You danced in the nightclub. You sang in a nightclub. You told stories in a nightclub. You think Jesus could use that? Well, he said he hadn't thought of it like that. I said, look, when you come to Christ, you come as a bankrupt. You don't offer him anything. You come with nothing. You are a beggar. You are a bankrupt. You have nothing. And he has everything. And he offers it to you. Be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God. And the important word is by faith. It's the only way in the world you can get it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. You can't steal it. You just trust him. You honor God when you believe him. And that righteousness came about because when he died on the cross, he subtracted your sins. And when he rose again from the dead, is for your justification, your righteousness. And you stand before God in Christ, not in yourself. You and I can't stand before him. May I say to you, God can't even stand us, friends. We're not attractive. The very fact he loved us and gave himself for us is the most amazing statement that can possibly be made. Now, Paul goes on, and he's going to talk about something beginning here at verse 10. And that is, Paul not only changed his bookkeeping system of the past, but Paul changed his purpose for the present. Now, instead of building up legal righteousness and seeing how religious and pious he can be, and that included persecuting the church, listen to this, what he's going to do. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, having been saved by faith, you see, that may give the impression that there's no motivation for conduct and works. Great many people say, 
Well, McGee, if it's like you tell it, that we're saved by grace, then it must mean that you just sit down and do nothing. My friend, you don't do that. Saving faith is a faith that moves you. James said, and James now is not talking about law works. He's talking about the faith works. He says, you show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And I want to say to you, if you've been saved by faith, I want to ask you a question, where are your works? And if you don't have works, you're not saved. Somebody said, wait a minute. Oh, no, let's don't wait a minute. That's exactly what Paul is going to say here, that if you have been saved by faith, that faith now has given you a new motivation, a new life purpose, and a new lifestyle. And my friend, if your faith in Christ hasn't changed you, you haven't been changed. You're still the same old man, and it's going to produce a life. Well, you notice what he says. Paul dissipates here the notion in this section that being saved by faith means you can sit in a rocking chair and rock yourself all the way to heaven. He here exhibits an effort and an energy that's derived from the Holy Spirit, which is far greater than any legal effort. Under the law... This man was willing to go to Damascus to stamp out the followers of Christ. Under the grace-faith system, he'll go to the end of the earth to make followers of Jesus and a witness for him. May I say to you, faith produces something. But let's understand, has nothing to do with your salvation. Your works have nothing to do with it. You're shut up to a cross, and God's only asking you, Lost friend, one thing, what will you do with Jesus that died for you? If you'll answer that and accept him as Savior, you're saved by faith. And that's a righteousness that only comes by faith. And even your life after that doesn't build up a righteousness that has anything to do with your salvation. But I tell you, it's a motivation for you to live for God. And that's the reason Paul went on to live as he did. That's the reason other men have. I just don't understand people that are doing nothing for God. Now, some people say, well, I can't do anything, Dr. McGee. I'm along in life, and I'm not trained to do that. I don't have a radio program. Let me be very candid with you. You can help me. You can be my partner and help me get out the Word of God. I'm retired, but I want to tell you I'm not going to quit. <laughs> I'm going to get out here where Paul's going to say to me, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. Oh, my friend, it gives a motive, a real motivation. Now, will you listen to this man as he moves on here? You see, at the end of his life, his ambition is still to know Christ. Some saints give me the impression that they know the whole bit, that they have arrived, and all they need to do is just polish their halo every morning, and they're just ready. They have to take off any moment. Why, my friend Paul, even at the end of his life, says, my ambition is still to know Christ, his person, the power of his resurrection. And I want to say to you, that right now is one of the greatest comforts that I have, because what I think I need is the reality of the person of Christ in my life. And now, don't point your finger at me, because I'm going to point my finger at you right now and say, I think that's what you need. We need the reality of Jesus Christ in our life the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, I was moved to tears when I read a letter of somebody that 
got a book on the 22nd Psalm. And they said, oh, I never knew how much he suffered for me. Well, may I say to you, I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. And I want to enter into it. To know Christ and his work of redemption will engage our attention for eternity. That's why we're going to be spending eternity. And if you're not interested in it now, I don't know why you want to go to heaven. You'd be bored because they're going to praise him 24 hours a day. They're going to praise him. And if you don't enjoy praising Christ and wanting to know him, I don't know why you want to go to heaven. I would suggest that you find another place to go because, my friend, they're going to glorify him in heaven. Now, in verse 11 here, Paul is not expressing a doubt, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, but about his participation in the rapture. Rather, he is affirming that he will have part in it with great joy. Paul does not expect to attain perfection in this life. And therefore, Paul says, I want to have full participation in the rapture. These folk that don't believe in a rapture, I wonder about their relationship to the person of Christ. Well, my friend, that is the thing that this man could say. He says, why, my ambition, the thing I'm moving toward is that I might not only know him, but might have part in the rapture in such a way it'll be meaningful. I think there are going to be some saints when they're going up, they're going to say, what in the world's happening? What a shock they're in for. Now, will you notice verse 12? He says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Jesus. What he's saying, I think, here is the knowledge that he'll not attain perfection here does not deter him from moving in that direction. We should be growing, as Peter put it, in grace and in the knowledge of him. Verse 13, and this will give you the modus operandi of the life of Paul. He says here, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Paul says, I'm not it. I haven't arrived. Oh, so many saints feel so comfortable. They feel comfortable in ignorance. They think they know it all. Oh, my friend, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the past, he's leaving it behind with all its mistakes, not letting it be a handicap for the present. The future, he lives in the present in anticipation of the future when he'll grow and develop. Someone has said that today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. This is practical sanctification. Oh, how real this is. And he says, I'm out on the race course. And there is a prize for Christian living. Paul's future is so absorbed with Christ that it motivates everything he says and does in the presence. And he likens himself to a track star running for a prize. And his prize is not some earthly reward, but for Christ himself, that someday, the rapture, he'll be caught up and be in the presence of Christ. And that was the thing that he anticipated, and that's what it is. And many of us need to get in the race of life. We need to get in this. I think there are a lot of Christians like the whimsical story I heard about the lady that was at a party, and they were playing a game who could make the funniest face. 
And finally, after they'd all made a funny face, why, they came over and handed her the prize. She says, what's this for? What's this for the prize for making the funniest face? Well, she said, I wasn't even playing. I think there are a lot of Christians not even playing at this wonderful, tremendous experience and adventure of living the Christian life. What a thrill it could be for us if we only made it first. This one thing I do. Oh, to whittle our life down to that one point, how wonderful it would be. Well, we'll leave off there today, and next time we'll pick up right there. And may the Lord bless you, my beloved. What great advice from Dr. J. Vernon McGee. As our time together closes, I pray that one thing remains your focus for today. To go deeper in your study of God's Word, just visit ttb.org to find out the many Bible study resources that we offer you. Or to be in touch, call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE. You know, there's so much more wisdom to discover next time as our study of Philippians continues. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'll save a seat on the Bible bus just for you. Through the Bible is a five-year study of God's entire Word, and together we discover God's purposes in history and our lives, found only when we believe in Jesus Christ. Do you know Him yet?